Welcome to Brandon Avat. Uh, today we have a very special guest all the way from uh, Ohio, one of the uh, big swing states in the election. And our episode tonight is an election episode. Uh, we are going to be talking about uh, the rationality of voting. Uh, I'm joined by Jacob Bauer, uh, who is at uh, the University of Dayton. Um, Jacob, would you like to th start with a thought experiment? Sure, yeah. So let's first explore whether voting has value. Uh, and uh, one of the primary arguments that uh, people give against voting having value, and this famously comes from uh, Stephen Levitt, uh, uh, somebody, uh, the, the author of Freakonomics, uh, he claims that, well, it, voting doesn't have value, or at least it has very little value because it's so unlikely to make a difference. Your single vote going to the polls is so unlikely to actually make a difference on uh, who's going to actually win the election that, well, it only has value to you if there are additional reasons for you to, uh, to do so. Maybe uh, he mentions like maybe your, your spouse will be happy if you do so, or maybe it provides you some conversation fodder, you know, uh, while you're at work. But if you have those additional aspects of value that it gives you to go to the polls, uh, then sure, if you enjoy it, great. But otherwise, uh, since it's so unlikely to make a difference, then why do it? Uh, I guess uh, we can start with that uh, particular argument and uh, we can note maybe some potential issues with it. Yeah, so I gather the concern is that the chances of your particular private vote influencing the outcome of election, especially on a national level, is just so infinitesimally small. Uh, I think the example that Levitt gives is that um, you are five times more likely um, to be struck by lightning twice uh, then influence the outcome of an election. And if that's the case, then you really, really are wasting your time when you stand in that long queue and go and post your vote. So therefore, don't do it. It's a waste of time. Exactly. It's just, uh, in terms of probability speaking, it's just a fact uh, of the world. If you live in a large comp uh, a country, you're not just voting on small community issues. Uh, it's very unlikely that your single view is act, uh, rather your single vote is actually going to change the outcome of any particular election. So what's interesting to my mind is that it seems that we've got to be a bit more fact specific. So, for example, you know, in the strange country that you live in, um, I live in a real democracy in South Africa. I'm not so sure about <laughs> yours. Um, you, it's not a popular vote question. So it's not the case that you just say, you know, the person with the most votes wins, in which case, you know, Levitt's case seems to become a very, very strong case, right? In other words, you've got, let's say, 140 million registered voters, your chances are just tiny of, of having an impact on who the president would be. But you have an electoral college system. So what matters is, you know, whether you have enough votes in a particular state. And what's so interesting about the election as we speak is how razor tight it is and that in how a handful of those states um, it could be decided by uh, a couple of thousand votes um, and that seems to change the probability odds and i wonder if that then changes whether it's rational to vote in those particular places um, given given that your chance of, of an outcome might be uh, higher yeah exactly and so this is uh Going to a, a philosopher from Oxford, uh, Will McCaskill, this is something that he critiques Leva on, saying that, look, uh, sure, it's unlikely, but have, saying that it's unlikely doesn't mean that the probability is zero. And depending on where you live, uh, your likelihood to swing an election, your single vote to matter, is going to be wildly different 
compared to, uh, well, if you live in a you know, very safe state like California, uh, in terms of the current election, sure, you know, your vote likely isn't going to make things change one way or the other. But as we're seeing uh, currently in Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, it really might come down to just a handful of votes being able to swing the election one way or another because of this weird, you know, electoral college system. Even though, you know, one candidate is going to have millions of votes more than the other, really, it's going to come down to a handful, which means the likelihood if you are in those regions of swing states, of uh, your vote making a difference is far higher than those uh, if you're in those safe states. So it seems to me, let's say you say your vote does matter a bit in those swing states. Uh, it's still one private vote. And instead of standing in that queue, um, you could be spending your time persuading people to vote for the candidate that you would pick. And the chances of you persuading people in order for it to be worthwhile is, can I persuade more than one? Um, you know, and, and there's the persuading the person who's not going to vote and there's persuading the person who's going to vote for the other guy. Voting for the other guy, you've done even better. You've sort of, you know, gotten additional numbers. So you still might think that if all you care about is trying to get to a particular result, um, you might want to keep it private that you don't intend on voting, that you just intend on campaigning. People might feel it's an odd thing to do. But if all you are is a consequentialist about voting, then it still seems irrational. You ought to just go out and canvas as hard as you can. Yeah, this is an interesting uh, point in the sense that, well, Levitt's definitely taking this consequentialist view here, right? Saying, uh, since it's not going to matter, ultimately speaking, or very unlikely for it to matter, then, well, just do it if you enjoy it. But if you're, if what matter, if you're trying to do what's going to have the best consequences, then yeah, focus. Uh, maybe I, I could totally see that point in the sense of maybe uh, if you're uh, at least very persuasive uh, in uh, dealing with uh, canvassing and, and, and trying to convince other voters, maybe that will be a, you spending that time uh, canvassing might uh, result in more votes for your candidate than otherwise. But I think that that might also depend on how long it takes for you to vote. Uh, in terms for myself, it only took maybe like 20 minutes. And so ask you know, whether that 20 minutes itself Really, are you really going to be able to get uh, more than one vote for your candidate in that uh, space of time? Uh, probably not. And but in some cases, uh, people had to wait in line for hours. And so maybe uh, that's maybe you could phone bank uh, for areas uh, that are that have less uh, restrictions and less time, waiting time, and be able to have better results that way. So if we're trying to cash out the the value of voting, in other words why you should do it at all. I mean, um, the free economics guys have taken the view that whoever's president doesn't really matter. Um, it's a kind of controversial position. They've said, ah, president's kind of overrated. It's, you know, this figure of a state. It's really this gigantic infrastructure. It's a very slow moving ship. Doesn't make too much difference one way or the other. Do you really want to go waste your time doing this thing that's kind of inconsequential, even if your guy does win? And even if you are the guy who tilted it, which is, you know, even in a case where it's, it's down to 10,000 votes, You've got a one in 10,000 chance. Are you going to be the tiebreaker? Mm, probably not. You know? um, so how would you cash out why it matters that you vote? What's the kind of value add? Uh, you know? Yeah, I guess the main thing you have to think about is what are the actual differences between the candidates that are at least likely to win? Uh, and uh, maybe there are situations where 
ultimately there aren't much differences. But it's actually uh, shortly after uh, I wrote a short article on this, but shortly after that, uh, Rob Wiblin from 80,000 Hours, uh, a week later, he posted a, a, a article that really goes into the depth in depth on questions like this. And he points out uh, that he notes that objection, but he notes that the with how much uh, spending that the president has control over and how that can just change, just a slight change uh, over trillions of dollars can really make a large effect in terms of spending money uh, in terms of foreign aid or domestically, just a small percentage change ends up being a lot of money that's, uh, that just in terms of monetary value is different. But there's also things like foreign policy. How much more likely is your country going to go to war with one person over another? Uh, immigration uh, issues, uh, you know, social and political uh, rights issues. But there it gets a little more tricky. How exactly do we estimate the value of those differences? Uh, there does seem to be pretty stark differences in the election today between uh, those two candidates, uh, even though some argue there should be you know, larger differences you know, from, from both sides. But how do we actually think of the overall value if we want to try to quantify it of those things might be difficult. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, it's an interesting analysis to try and cash things out into a neutral thing like money. So if you could say, well, often when we're thinking about making decisions around risk and the cost of doing something, we think about the reward on the other end. Um, but here what we have in the election is, I mean, you might think that some of that comes out in money. So if, you're, if the candidate that you want is going to hand out a tax cut um, that's going to go into your, into your pocket, you might say, well, there's a chance that I'll be the guy who kind of um, tilts the election my way uh, and I'll get the tax cuts. So this can be generated in dollars, but some of it is an incommensurate values. So as you say, well, the one candidate is um, pro-life uh, and I think that um, abortion is immoral. And I you know, put that onto the, the scale, um, but also he's not willing to go into the foreign wars that I would like him to go into. And I feel like, you know, America needs to be a, a crusading authority. who can go and spread its, uh, its message into the middle East and, you know, wherever else. And so I don't like it. He's willing to do that. I think the other guy might be more willing, you know, uh, so the kinds of different things that a candidate could do, it's not clear that we could translate it in a very simple way to say, overall, this is the, the best guy. Uh, and it's not even simple. We could say this is the best guy for a particular person. I mean, in this overall, I agree that it's going to be very difficult to actually come up with solid estimates of what are the actual outcomes between various candidates, especially as you know, if we take into all of these different considerations. There are those that attempt to do that. They try to estimate, you know, what, how do we, you know, we can set a monetary value on a person's life or a person's injury. Uh, and maybe we can even think of, uh, try to assign a monetary value to a loss of life so that we can at least come up with some numbers uh, to be able to plug into uh, our equation, you know, uh, how much difference one is going to make here. I, but I think this line of reasoning might fall victim of uh, the line drawing fallacy in the sense that, well, we can't, since we can't really come to concrete numbers here, or at least maybe even come close to concrete numbers, uh, then we can't make any estimates whatsoever. I think nonetheless, even though it's very hard to actually, how do we quantify uh, maybe you know, losing uh, marriage rights for uh, same-sex couples, for example, uh, if one candidate, uh, or at least more likely someone's going to make that happen? Or how do we quantify uh, a potential war uh, in this region? All right, well, it's going to be very difficult to come up with exact estimates, but if the difference is large enough, I 
might not be necessary. So there's also some sense in which your political philosophy in a very abstract way will matter and how you do that. So if what you think matters is your private interests and that that's what ought to motivate your vote, then all you do is you say, what are the things that I care about? Are they going to come about if my guy wins? Um, and then you do the calculation. The other way to do it is you say, what would be best for everyone if, um, if a particular candidate came in, you try to take into account everyone's preferences. Um, that might very well lead you to vote a different way. So an example might be, let's say there's five of us living in a house and we're kind of deciding on a rule about smoking. And I say, well, look, I'm a smoker. So my interest is in being able to smoke in the house. But I know that some of the other guys have emphysema and that if I smoke in the house, uh, it's going to be really tough on them. And so when I take into account their interests, I decide that the right way to vote is to vote um, against smoking and to have a ban in the house, even though it's contrary to my private interest. So when you think citizens are making this voting choice, which of the two positions ought they to adopt? Yeah, so I definitely think it's the view that you need to, you should take the view of what's going to benefit people overall. Uh, and in fact, going back to uh, a criticism of Levitt's view on this by Will McCaskill, he does point to like th that there's two major errors that Levitt makes. One of the, the errors by taking his line of reasoning say, well, it's so unlikely for it that actually make a difference, only do it if you enjoy it, is that you're, you shouldn't actually just think of the difference that it makes just for you. Think of the possibility of the difference that it'll make for everybody at large. And if we assess that it assess our decision in that way, even though it still is a very low odds. And we should be clear, even if voting in these uh, you know, swing states where your odds are higher, it's still something like one in 60 million to one in uh, 3 million. I think I've seen some lower uh, estimates on that. So it's still low odds, right? Uh, even if you're in these, uh, these states where it's, uh, more con uh, where it's more competitive. Uh, but nonetheless, if you think of what's at stake, even if it's just, uh, McCaslin gives just a, an estimate, but say it's just a thousand dollar if we uh, difference, and we can say maybe we're counting things like uh, those intangible stuff we're trying to quantify that into, but let's say it's just a thousand dollar difference on average per person, that ends up still being a pretty huge difference when we're thinking of a country of over 300 million. And plus, we also have to think about what's the effect internationally as well in uh, places, uh, countries like the United States, well, that's, they have a huge impact on, uh, well, international politics too. So I think, yeah, if we uh, consider the overall gain for everyone, uh, even though it's still very low odds that your vote will make a difference, because the stakes are so high when we take into all of those consequences, it makes your vote still valuable. Uh, another uh, issue is just dismissing the, the low probability events altogether. If we just, uh, it's very tempting to do that. Very often when we think of low probability events, uh, humans aren't very good at assessing them. Either we just say, all right, it's unlikely, so we're just not going to consider it, or it's unlikely, but I'm going to be the exception. Think of like the lottery, right? Where people uh, go uh, pay for their lottery ticket and hopes that they'll be, they know that it's very unlikely, but you know, they're the ones that are going to win or going to the casinos, less extreme example, but still same basic principles apply. So just because something's unlikely doesn't mean we should dismiss it because if something's unlikely but it has a very extreme consequences if it does occur it's still something we should take seriously you know, a good example would be you know, asteroid impact it's if you look historically a large enough asteroid uh, impact to 
wipe out a significant amount of people is, is extremely rare, but it's still something that we probably uh, should devote some time to a, a preventing uh, so that we don't end up like the dinosaurs. Yeah, so McCaskill's this interesting case where he says, imagine you've got a dice um, and we place bets on which values come out. So just because I've got a bunch of board games behind me, I'm not going to use a six-sided dice, I'll use a D20. And let's say I say, Excellent. if you roll a 20, uh, you get $1,000. But you roll any other number, you pay me a dollar. Okay, so the odds are, you know, only 5% that you win and 95% chance that you lose. Um, the question is, should you roll the dice? Um, and I think it makes a difference how many times you get to roll the dice. So if you say you get to roll the dice once, you might say, well, you know, my chances are pretty low. I don't know if I want to lose my dollar. Um, but if I say you get to roll the dice a thousand times, well, then you definitely ought to roll it because the odds are going to cancel themselves out. You know, every, um, you know, every 20 spins on average, you're going to get a thousand dollars. And so the amount that you pay in um, will really pale in, uh, in comparison to the amount that you get out. Now, elections, obviously, you don't get to re-roll. You only get to do this thing once. Um, now, you gave this interesting example of trying to stop a very bad thing from happening, like an asteroid hitting. And I wonder if we think about elections like that, if you think the other guy is so bad, I really think he ought not to be there. And it would be like the asteroid hitting us. And whichever way you want to cash that out, uh, restrictions of rights, terrible for the economy. Um, should you be not just engaging in a private voting process, but should you be trying to actively disencourage people from voting? So if you think, well, the other guy's supporters look like they're very keen to vote, and I'm going to try and tell them why it is totally irrational to vote, they shouldn't waste their time, don't do it, that's a way um, of trying to get the result that I want, of stopping the asteroid, of having my insurance policy by having a not necessarily voter suppression, a voter dissuasion tactic. Yeah, and unfortunately, we see some of that uh, in the States, uh, other countries maybe more so, but you know, those type of tactics uh, are taking place. And uh, so the question is, in terms, is that justified? If you think uh, you know the correct candidate, it's going to be better off for everybody if we try to convince other people not to vote or in some ways prevent them to vote uh, in see some uh, factors for that is uh, limiting precincts so there's long lines so people won't uh, stay in line to do so. So maybe if uh, you are sure that your candidate is the correct one, those are justified because you're trying to get those better results. Uh, if we're thinking just on strict consequentialist terms, that might be an implication or maybe on a more reduced level, you could try to convince people, hey, you, you probably shouldn't vote this year or, or uh, you know, you, you don't vote for if you uh, don't vote for your candidate, or just stay at home. It's not worth it this year. So maybe using those type of arguments for a limited section of the population where you think are going to vote for the wrong candidate. Uh, I could see that on uh, potentially on a consequentialist level that might work out. There might be some backlash though in terms of you think of the larger societal uh, implications uh, if word gets out that you are uh, using these tactics, those can be very easy, easily used against yourself. And that can also be seen in a negative light for your candidate instead. Uh, so in terms of maybe on a, you can come up with a theoretical model uh, or where that could work. But I think in reality, that's gonna end up having a larger backlash uh, to your own uh, candidate, unless it's done maybe in these systematic uh, subversive ways that, you know, well, some 
campaigns actually do try to do actively. I mean, what you do find is that campaigns rely on differential turnout. So, you know, one way to do well uh, is you make sure that all of your voters arrive to the election and you hope very few of the other guys arrive. Um, assuming that, let's say, you were in a 50-50 uh, race on interests. So, in other words, in a place where it's split down the middle, your party or the other party, um, the way that you campaign might be quite different. So, for example, um, you might think that um, slipping get-out-the-vote um, pamphlets under your guys' doors um, instead of having a big rally which alerts the other side to the fact that this is a contested election might be one way to do that. Um, so in South Africa, we find, for example, we have um, what we call single-party dominance. So the African National Congress has been in power um, since 1994 um, and has had a large percentage of the votes since then. And um, smaller parties, opposition parties, have managed to get differential turnout in local elections. Um, and part of that is because there's no big rallying person to kind of, you know, support. There's no president in that particular candidate, um, in that particular campaign. So those opposition parties then are able to rely on differential turnout to get over and above results. They don't do things like um, don't vote, um, you know, but they might very well rely on a kind of voter apathy in those certain circumstances. The other issue that I think is interesting is you know, you have a first-past-the-poll system. We have proportional representation. So here, no votes go to waste. In other words, uh, we have a one-man, one-vote, um, and then we work, we tally up the numbers, and then a number of different parties are represented in our parliament. You don't really have that. You have, if you win in your district um, uh, by one vote, then your guy comes in, all the other votes are tossed aside. And so there's a sense in which we said, does my vote count? In South Africa, I can say, yes, it does. It was added up. It was used to get a candidate in. Um, but in America, if you, if you vote as a Republican in California, your vote for the president does not count. It will be flushed down the toilet. It doesn't matter. Uh, and you might think in those circumstances, there's something um, very odd about voting. The other bit that I wonder about is third candidate, candidate spoilers. So, I mean, the classic case is going to be Ralph Nader, right? Um, stealing the election from, uh, from Al Gore. If all of those guys had voted for the Democrats, uh, instead of voting for Nader's Green Party, Gore would have won. Um, and and I, w I wonder what your view is then on, on voting for a candidate who cannot become the president. Yeah, so uh, I guess speaking to your first point in terms of uh, this all or nothing system that and for the most part, the United States works from. Uh, and I, that, that is uh, something that there is some debate on. Uh, the main thing that I hear argued for is ranked choice voting, where you have something similar where your vote, vote isn't just going to be disregarded completely uh, if, uh, if your candidate doesn't win. Uh, but it's still fairly unpopular. There are some states slowly you know, converting to that. And I think in terms of uh, it makes sense uh, to switch to something more like that so that it would give your vote more power. It does make your vote matter more often uh, and as such, the expected value of your vote would be raised. Uh, and uh, so your voice is more likely to be heard beyond just saying, look, hey, look at the margins uh, that this person won by. And to uh, the second question of, of third parties, it depends on, so if we're just looking at this from the consequential point of view of, of value, then the third party vote, uh, if uh, in general, is gonna have an extremely low value uh, because they're so unlikely to actually win. 
the probability of them winning in any given uh, election, especially in terms of presidential election, not so much uh, in sometimes for smaller congressional uh, seats that, that that might be different. Uh, but for especially for the president, president's uh, presidential election, it's so unlikely uh, for them to, to vote. Then uh, the odds that you, so if you do an expected value calculation, what's the likelihood of my uh, vote having, uh, making a difference? If it does, uh, then my candidate, my you know, Green Party or Libertarian candidate will, will be elected. They'll be far better uh, than the Republican or Democrat uh, case. But since those odds are so low, the expected value is going to be extremely low as well. And well, it, it does bring us to an interesting question of, well, should you just vote for who you think will be the best candidate or should you vote for the best candidate that you think will win? And in terms of if you, if you want your, your, your vote to potentially make a difference and have value in that sense, then it's clear that you should uh, vote for the candidate that you think has a chance to win that will make the most difference rather than your ideal candidate. Yeah, so there's there's some sense in which you know big parties will say, look, you're wasting your vote if you vote for you know libertarians or greens, um, so you've got to pick one of us. But you know, people that support those causes might say, but both of you are so obnoxious. Uh, you know, I, I just I, I really have to hold my nose to vote um, you know Democrat or Republican because I think you fundamentally clash with my libertarian or green values. Um, and so, you know, people sort of vote out of principle when they vote for libertarians, let's say. They don't think Gary Johnson's going to win or Joe Jorgensen's going to win. But there's some other interesting consequentialist sense in which you might do this. You might say, look, Joe Jorgensen, for example, the number of votes that she, she has uh, in some of those states, if you added them to the other candidate, it might be enough. To, to flop it over. In other words, those sort of uh, protest votes could go in a particular direction. You might say, look, I, I cannot stomach voting for one of the two big parties, um, but I'd prefer it if one of them won. And one way to do that is I'm going to vote for this third party candidate. That way I get to have my cake and eat it. The bad guy doesn't win and I got to vote my conscience. Yeah, so I guess... Uh, in terms, so in a consequentialist sense, so you are a protest vote, right? You're saying that, all right, this guy isn't going to win, that the candidate that I don't want, uh, but I am voting for this other candidate instead to show, uh, so you're still voting, uh, but at least you're having this margin here uh, that shows that they aren't going to win as by as much. And I think this effect uh, did play out somewhat in 2016. And I think you're right in terms of uh, the libertarian candidate this time around in the United States, uh, if those votes in some cases went to Trump, instead, he would have won those states. Now we'll have to see what the numbers actually look like uh, when, we, uh, uh, when we see the numbers. So it, there is a essential risk here that if too many people are thinking just like you, uh, it might go wrong. So I wanna say now breaking news, um... Before we started recording this episode, Jacob and I had taken a vote to exclude the, the child from the room. Uh, Jason has some very, very radical views uh, on elections. He's an anarchist. And uh, he has disregarded our will, thrown our votes aside, busted in. And uh, Jason, we're going to let you um, talk a bit about um, why you think voting is always immoral. Yeah, so, so I think voting's immoral. I mean, really, Mark, you're throwing me in... <laughs> 
<laughs> right in the deep end, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think voting is immoral because, well, there's a few reasons. The first is that I'm not sure states exist. Um, and if you, if you vote as if states do exist, you are voting against what is real. And there might be some fidelity to the truth that's required of us. Um, so that, that would be a first reason. But let's just assume states do exist. I don't think any state is legitimate. And so if you vote for a state, um, it seems like you're voting for something that in principle can't be legitimate. Um, and then, then let's, let's, let's assume that states do exist and could be legitimate. Um, still, it seems to me like you wouldn't want to vote for any of these states because then you are kind of, uh, you are lending uh, credibility to them and you're also implicitly uh, supporting them. Um, you know, the, the line is that, uh, well, if you don't vote, you can't criticize the state, um, but it should be exactly the opposite, which is that if you do vote, then you can't criticize the state because what you're doing is you're implicitly saying that whatever results um, is the one that comes out in a democratic uh, election, if you're participating, you will support that result. Um, and that, you know, many people disagree with a lot of the things that the state does, especially if you're a Democrat voting in a Republican state comes into power or vice versa. So it seems to me like you particularly would not want to vote in, ele in an election where you're not sure whether your candidate will win. So, Jacob, as a fellow adult in the room, how do you respond to this critique that when you participate in the voting process, really what you're doing is legitimating something um, that might be illegitimate. Um, you know, for example, we can have a very extreme example. Let's say, imagine that you've got um, Hitler and Stalin are running in the elections and you've got to choose between Nazism and communism and they're both clearly evil ideologies and you go, look, neither of these guys could be legitimate. Um, and everyone's saying, but you've got to vote. Get out the vote. It's important that you participate in this process. And you say, but really, I, I just can't. I, I think a vote in either direction would be just so immoral that I'm refusing to do so. Yeah, I think my main concern is making a difference. You know, and I could see, I think the basic argument deals with uh, kind of the clean hands in terms of purity tests, right? Where you uh, want to make sure you don't, you aren't party to something that you don't agree with. Uh, but in, in terms of uh, whether, uh, what difference are you actually making by not participating? Where you're more likely to actually make a difference. Uh, I like the example of, uh, you know, voting between a Hitler figure or a Stalin figure. Now on one level, maybe they're both terrible enough in the sense that there isn't a clear difference in terms of which one's gonna actually be worse. Uh, but if we have, let's say tyrant A and tyrant B, and there is a clear difference uh, in the sense, they're both gonna be terrible, uh, but one's gonna be less terrible, a little less awful, uh, or maybe at least uh, less awful enough that it's, it's a, a clear difference. There, uh, it still seems to me that perhaps you should vote for Tyrant B, uh, which is a little less awful, and then work on dismantling, uh, you know, that person's power throughout the time as well. And this is a common argument that actually, in terms of a United States election, for Bernie Sanders supporters, for example, who are not a fan of Joe Biden uh, whatsoever, and many are saying, well, go, you should, because the difference is so large, uh, vote for Biden, but then the real work starts after that, uh, uh, resisting after the fact. So it seems like if you are perhaps anarchist in, in principle, maybe you should still vote for the anarchist uh, candidate, but then still try to dismantle the system uh, as you go along. 
So Jacob, I wonder, I, I mean, I know your view is that, um, that voting does have expected utility, right? Um, you know, that, that your vote, uh, even, even though uh, the chances are fairly low that your vote will swing in an, an election, uh, the point is that if it does swing an election, it has such a high utility, uh, assuming you vote for the right candidate, um, that, that it makes sense. Even though it's a low probability event, very high utility, multiply the one by the other and you still get quite a significant sum. Um, I, I wonder though, uh, I, I mean, Mark may have gone through some of these objections with you, but I wonder whether, um, whether you're double counting. So this is something that, that Mark and I were discussing. Mark, did you present that objection? Okay, so the double counting problem is, what you're saying is, okay, the reason why the utility is so high is that it's not just the utility for you, it's the utility for each of the other people involved, the whole society, right? So each person gets this big utility raise. Um, and so what you're doing is really altruistically fantastic. It also has some self-benefit, but really the benefit is for everyone. Uh, so the utilitarian would be very pleased. Um, but now, I, now think about this. So each person has to do the same calc, right? So each person is, is casting their vote, which has, a, has utility both for themselves and for everyone else. So, so how is it possible that their utility is counted both for your action and for their action and for everyone else who votes for that candidate with the positive utility? Doesn't it sound like you double, triple, quadruple, you know, et cetera, in, uh, uh, counting this, the same utility value. Yeah. So I think we can look at this in a couple ways. Well, one, uh, you could potentially divvy up uh, in terms of the United States, uh, divvy up the expected value for everybody that if your vote makes a difference in that case, that voted for that candidate and it's kind of divvy up the expected value in that sense. And it's still probably a decent amount. Uh, but another way you can look at it is ultimately if it, your one vote is the one that makes a difference, it ultimately is just one person that makes a difference. Uh, it, whoever uh, and how exactly you, should you pick that one person, I don't know, maybe the last person that cast their vote, or maybe the first one or what have you. Uh, but ultimately it's that tipping point, I guess, uh, that, all, uh, that all that expected value rests upon. But it does kind of bring up uh, another interesting point in the sense of, uh, so Garrett Hardin's Tragedy of the Commons, where there's certain things that uh, it, we can only really address by everybody working uh, together uh, and one individual by themselves can't do it. Uh, so if we think, uh, and I think voting is a, essentially an example of that, where if just one person votes for your candidate, that's not gonna do anything. You actually need a critical mass of individuals. Uh, and you can make that a similar argument where your single vote uh, isn't actually it by itself going to do anything. You actually need those other people as well. And so perhaps uh, you can't, no one single person can just claim all that value for themselves. But in terms of looking at the end difference uh, uh, that would resolve in those very uh, unlikely, but do happen cases where uh, elections are determined by just one individual, there is a clear difference in terms of the value that would have occurred versus would not have occurred for what your single vote. So I think if I understand Jason's objection, it's the, the kind of calculation that could be done is to say, well, look at everybody's interests, add up all of those interests, let's assign that a dollar value, um, and then you should take that into account on your probability. Um, but I think your concession is correct, which is to say, but then you have to divide. Uh, 
by the number of people that, that are there. Um, and so then you kind of wind up back in a situation where every private voter is only really taking into account their own uh, expected value. Um, and then when you add that up, you don't have the double account. But the problem with that, of course, is that, you know, you may only get um, less than a penny's worth for your participation in the vote. And if I said to you, um, let's say you say, well, it is, it's a penny and it only takes me 20 minutes. Um, would you work for three pennies an hour? Um, you know, voting so good. Would you keep doing it like on a regular basis? If I said to you, there are so many votes, let's not just have presidential elections. Let's vote on everything. Uh, you know, the more participatory democracy, the better. And uh, it's basically worth uh, three, three pennies an hour for it. Uh, at some point, you just say, well, maybe I don't want to vote. Yeah. And I think ultimately, that's not the correct way to assess the expected value in the sense that we're looking at the cases uh, that your single vote you choosing yourself to go to the polls or not will make a difference. And ultimately in those very narrow cases, it will just be one person's decision to go vote uh, in that day versus not going vote to go vote. And so that single action is ultimately the one that will win the day. Uh, and it, and if, we, if we still just try to divide things up uh, uh, per voter in essence, ultimately it's still the voters that are in excess that made the difference. All those votes beforehand uh, ultimately, especially you know, as we talked about previously uh, in the United States system, well, they didn't actually do much except for maybe saying this person didn't win by so much of a margin, so they don't have quite as much of a, a mandate. So I, I've got a metaphysical question, right? So the metaphysical question is, suppose that your vote makes the difference, right? So, so let's say there's a million votes on each side and a million and, and one wins it, right? The million and first vote wins it. Why is it that the million and first vote wins it and not any of the preceding votes? Um, why, is it, why is it the chronologically last vote that counts and none of the previous ones? Uh, and to be honest, in terms of how exactly should we, whose vote is the one that ultimately makes the difference there? Ultimately, it's the one vote that ultimately makes the difference whether uh, someone wins or not. But, you know, which one are we going to count? I'm not exactly sure if we need to count the last one or the first one uh, in that regard. It's the one that's making a difference. I well, think maybe if, if, we, uh, is, uh, if we go back to the example of pre preventing uh, a catastrophic asteroid impact, you know, that might take uh, a lot of people to, uh, to end up, uh, you know, making to be able to prevent something like that from happening. And let's say, uh, imagine, you know, this does occur and we actually do end up preventing it. But maybe it comes down to one person being able to press the button at the right time or seeing what exactly happens. Now, it still took all those other people to develop the technology, but it's still that difference was made uh, ultimately by a single choice in the matter. But isn't there, okay, so, so that's a very interesting analogy, the asteroid, because in the asteroid case, you require the efforts of all these different scientists and Bruce Willis, who's going to, to press the button and stick around to do so. D did he stick around? It was Bruce Willis who stuck around. Yeah. Um, he sacrifices himself for it. So it's, it's the concerted effort of all these people. It's all the crew on the spaceship and all the scientists who send them up. But it seems there like there's a collective action that happens, right? It's not just a series of individual actions, it's a collective action. So the collective action is, we stop the asteroid, okay? I wonder whether that's not what's happening here, is that there's not a series of individual votes, there's a collective vote, 
we voted for Biden to become president. Um, by the way, we don't know yet whether Biden's going to become president at the time of this recording, but let's, let's just go with that. We vote for Biden to become president. But then, yes, the utility of we vote for, for Biden to become president is very, very high, perhaps assuming Biden's the right candidate, which I'm not sure about, but assuming he is. Um, why is it the case that, that my action has that associated, associated utility? Isn't, as Mark said, my action actually the, that total utility of the collective action divided by the number of people who committed it? Um, you know, who performed that collective action, which would be a million and one in this case. Um, and so then it's tiny, right? Yeah, I guess going back to the Bruce Willis example here, uh, imagine Bruce Willis sitting there uh, about to press the button and he starts calculating his expected value of his decision. It's still you know, a very consequential decision you know, for him individually. And you know, we have to modify it and say, well, all these people, they had to do what they did, right, uh, in order for it all to work out, you know, uh, a single one of them, you know, would take that them out of the, the, the chain, then it wouldn't work. But still, at the time of uh, that person, uh, of Bruce Willis uh, making a decision, the expected value is still, you know, something that's very positive for him and ind individual, even though it's the byproduct of collective uh, action as a result. But I also want to uh, bring in the concept of, uh, so, so far we've mainly been thinking of uh, act utilitarianism, right? Uh, uh, what the consequences of your single action, how do you determine it, uh, it when we have these very uncertain outcomes? And the general view is, well, uh, do expected, uh, expected uh, utility function, you know, where you look at the probabilities and what, uh, what's, what will your action make a difference if it does and so on. But we can also look at it in a rule utilitarian sense and, and uh, think of, uh, if everybody uh, chooses, you know, not to uh, vote for, uh, in what would be the result? A, a government with a democracy versus a government without a democracy. Now, uh, I don't know, maybe Jason, if you're not anarchist, maybe you say, but that sounds great. <laughs> that's, uh, uh, that's not, all right, so nobody vote, great. Uh, but I think uh, for many individuals, uh, that's not gonna be their assessment. Instead, they're gonna say, well, compared to the alternatives, this is the one that is gonna have the best utility, at least right now. Uh, and so the way things currently stand, the general rule is that I should go, you know, do, do a little bit of research or uh, maybe a lot of research and figure out which candidate is going to be best and go uh, vote because everybody, or at least most, if uh, uh, most people do this action, then it will have the best results overall. So I wonder about this as an analogy. So we've been thinking about this in a rational way that you're participating in a thing to get a good outcome, the way that you might make decisions about investing in your life, about you know, um, you know, what, what you're going to study, the kind of expected outcomes you get. I wonder if it's something totally different. So imagine you're a football fan and uh, you support the Dallas Cowboys and your friend supports the Washington Redskins and you're all watching the sort of uh, game uh, at home. And you're rooting very hard at home and you've got your full regalia. You're, you're dressed like a Native American. Um, you know, the other guy's got a cowboy hat on. And, uh, and obviously all the rooting you do at home will have absolutely no impact at all on the game. None of the players have any idea how hard you are whistling and waving and rooting and tooting. Um, but you feel like you did the right thing. You did a virtuous act by 
by arriving for your team and showing your loyalty and participating in this collective. And the next day you can say, we did it, we won. Or you can mourn with a friend and say, we lost. What an awful thing happened to us. Um, and of course, you had nothing to do with it at all, but you had the feeling that you had something to do with it. And I wonder if that's what's going on in your blue versus red, is that people are consumed in some kind of sports match where they feel like their vote matters, even if most of the time it matters about as much as watching a football game behind your TV screen. Poor Jacob, Mark. I mean, like, I, I, I truly, I'm on your side on this. Uh, I'm, I'm the anarchist in the room, the child, but... Poor Jacob, we really are putting him on the spot. Sorry, Jacob. No, no worries, it's enjoyable. Uh, I mean, I think on one level, it's true in the sense of the enjoyment or stress that we get out of uh, participating in uh, the voting exercise. It does seem like a, a football game in the sense, well, I guess just looking at the results right now, now people across the world are constantly refreshing our browsers, seeing what's going on. Is that gonna make a difference at all? No, <laughs> well, not whatsoever, but whatsoever. But uh, it's a social enterprise. People are posting on their social media, talking with their friends uh, about, in essence, their team, right? Uh, but whoever does win is going to, there is going to be a significant difference. Uh, now, you can make that claim about teams as well. Uh, it's kind of a, a, uh, a difference that we make in terms of the value we give it, in terms of uh, if we value the, watching that sport and so on and who wins prizes. But the difference uh, between one candidate over another could be a difference of warfare, can be the difference of uh, different amounts of aid given to different agencies or different parts of the world. Uh, and so, sure, I, there's definitely a, an aspect where we do treat, uh, especially uh, uh, the news, uh, news outlets and so on, uh, we do as a society treat these elections like they're a sports game. But there are also real stakes uh, uh, that are involved as well. Do you think you're operating according to something like a maxi-min principle? Um, so a maxi-min principle is one where you have a low probability, low certainty event, uh, but that has horrendous outcomes, um, and you do everything you can to stop that from happening. Um, and in this case, what you can do is vote. Um, that's all you can do, really. You could campaign yourself, sure, but you know you should you should you should minimize the chances of this maximally awful thing from happening. Um, I wonder whether that's the principle you're applying here. Uh, I definitely, I think it does apply uh, in, in terms of uh, whether that's my primary view on it. I'm not exactly sure. And to be clear, uh, I don't. I, I, in terms of my own personal views, I don't think that expected value is the only reason you should vote. If that was the case, uh, there are a lot of people that shouldn't vote. Uh, there are states, safe states, uh, and I guess uh, uh, where your vote actually doesn't translate, uh, doesn't, uh, will, won't make very much uh, of a difference. But it, there is the, uh, the main thing with, uh, that I'm trying to argue is that it can, it, that we shouldn't, dis uh, just because there are low probability uh, are, uh, uh, outcomes that we should just dismiss it. And going to your maxi-min approach, I think that works pretty well in the sense that for most people uh, in the United States, voting it comes at a very low cost. Uh, maybe fill out a form, uh, go to uh, the polls if there's not long lines, it's not a big deal. Uh, do a little bit of research uh, beforehand uh, to, to learn about the candidates. So it's a pretty low cost for a potential high benefit. 
And so uh, even if you are, uh, even if your vote doesn't matter, what's the worst thing that results from that? Well, uh, you get that election day sticker, uh, you get to uh, talk about you know, your sports game, in this case, uh, the candidates you know, with your friends and family. Um, maybe that's a net negative, I don't know, in some situations. Uh, but you know, what exactly is the cost there for you? It's gonna be pretty minimal. And now depending on what you do with that, what you could do with that time otherwise, maybe it's, uh, there's good reasons to do something else. But for, I think for most Americans, uh, and most people that live in functional democracy, well, and we could argue whether the uh, United States has a functional democracy or not. Uh, it's not, the cost is so low and the outcomes can be so significant. Yeah, it just makes sense just to go ahead and do it. So I, I wanna, let's push ourselves forward to um, the day that the president gets sworn in. And let's say we have this um, scenario where between the recording of this episode and that swearing in date, there is just absolute chaos and a complete lack of certainty and both candidates arrive to be sworn in. And you kind of wind up in this situation where people have been really, really torn apart. Um, now, I ask this partly because you have a special interest in Mahatma Gandhi and, uh, and in his political writings and the way that he dealt with um, a perceived oppressor force. Um, so Gandhi spent a bit of time in South Africa where he developed this um, passive resistance Satyagraha um, ideology. Um, and you know, in dealing with the, the British colonial empire, the idea was that they wouldn't use violent attacks to, to overthrow the British, that they would rather use um, this passive resistance approach and shame the British um, into retreating. And ultimately, you know, Gandhi was vindicated and India became its own nation. Now, if we are faced with a situation where there's a crisis of legitimacy, where the one side feel that the other side stole the election uh, and that they ought not to be there, what are the kinds of things that you think would be uh, permissible for them to do to show their disdain for the result? Yes, what, in terms of uh, what should we do in these disputed, if this is a uh, disputed result, uh, I guess uh, in terms of how should we respond, I, I haven't really thought about it a, a lot. I guess I, uh, it's something that maybe we should consider depending on how results come in the next couple uh, days here. I, I would in general draw the line uh, at using uh, violence and physical force uh, unless it's absolutely necessary. I wouldn't go to the extent, so Gandhi, he's, uh, even though he does think that in some cases uh, using violence is preferable over not uh, over cowardice, for example. He's always says that violence is always bad in, in every situation to certain degrees. Uh, in general, I don't think we uh, will get to the case where that's gonna be necessary. And the, those that unfortunately might uh, use violence no matter how things go uh, this election, uh, I don't think it will be justified uh, based upon uh, the results that I think we can we have the history of being able to get uh, to mobilize largely nonviolently uh, that it will be and can be successful to use those nonviolent tactics rather than violent ones. So Jacob, you've given an act utilitarian reason, probabilistic act utilitarian reason for why you should vote. You've also given a rule utilitarian reason. Do you have other types of reasons, let's say a deontological or Kantian reason for voting? Great, yeah, this is something that I, want to explore more uh, in writing, probably when we get around to the next election cycle. Uh, 
But yeah, I think so from my uh, own point of view, I'm not a strict utilitarian. I consider myself more of an ethical pluralist. I view ethical reasons in a similar way where uh, we think of just reasoning itself, logic itself. We have deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, abductive reasoning. Uh, in terms of moral reasoning, I think we have things like utilitarianism and uh, uh, deontological reasons or even virtue ethics. And those uh, have uh, each of their own weight uh, that can be applied to any given situation. So yeah, this act uh, utilitarian reason, this rule utilitarian reason, I think these are reasons uh, for us to vote or not to vote, but they're defeasible. They're not uh, things that are just the only things that we should consider. So some other things, potential reasons, uh, I guess building off of the rule utilitarian view, you could think of a Kantian uh, scenario. Uh, now, if, if I, I don't know Kant's politics uh, very well, but from what I gather, he wasn't really a fan of democracy during his time, but we can still use his theory to think about voting in the sense of, uh, so think about his universal law principle. Uh, so the version of the categorical imperative where we try to think of, uh, the maximum of our action, so the general motives and intentions that we have and what we're going to do. Uh, can we think of that as a universal law of nature where everybody also acts on that maximum when it applies without logical contradiction? Now, famously, Kantian ethics, it's very difficult to come up with positive moral obligations like you should always vote, something like that. But I think if we plug in something like especially in terms of uh, the way political structures are today, and you plug in a maxim, well, I am not going to vote because my vote is unlikely to matter. So uh, we have this intention not to vote. What's our, our, our motive? Well, because it's just so unlikely that it's going to matter. Now, plug that into uh, the universal law principle, try to think of everybody also holding that particular maxim. Now, uh, as a result, we don't have a, a democracy. Uh, and so if you, uh, if you look at, it's not just that it has bad consequences, it leads to a world that goes against your, your general, uh, if you wanna have some type of uh, de democratic system, you have a contradiction uh, in, your, in your view. So if you aren't an anarchist and you are a uh, believe in democracy, it seems from a Kantian point of view, if you don't wanna have a contradiction uh, in your will, you should, vote at least some of the time uh, uh, and, and the set, as if uh, you were just running through just not voting. So that may, might mean uh, that you should vote for high stakes uh, issues or, or maybe you have to use personal discretion of when exactly you should vote, but just ruling out voting for that reason entirely wouldn't pass uh, in the Kantian muster, I think. That's an interesting question. I mean, if we run that, that means test, in other words, if I say, what if everybody, you know, um, voted democrat like me um you know then you have you know a, a one-party state we think that's a terrible state of affairs um so it depends at the degree of abstraction in which we ask how the universalizability happens you know in other words uh you know if i said should i become an accountant and i said what if everyone became an accountant uh, well then we'd all starve to death because there's no farmers and you know, there's no variety so you can cash it out in some abstract way which would be something like everyone ought to um work in a profession in accordance with their abilities, uh, let's say. Um, and that's the kind of you can universalize. Um, I, I wonder if, if your idea that, well, if I don't vote, then what I'm saying is that, they ought, that no one should vote, um, whether that allows me to opt out of some elections over others um, and on what basis I could do it, and whether it then creates a moral obligation on me to vote. 
So in Australia, for example, you have a legal obligation to vote. Uh, if you don't vote, um, you're penalized. Um, and you know, in other countries, we think of um, votes as a right and a right that can be waived. Um, we, we don't think that you have a, an obli a legal obligation, although some people talk of this civic duty um, that you ought to do it. Uh, what, what's your take on, on that front? In other words, if we set aside the kind of uh, utilitarian situation, especially in our case where you're, you're voting in a place where you know your vote won't matter, uh, could you be nonetheless obliged to do it? Yeah, I think following the, the Kantian reasoning there, I think it would make you kind of give uh, some justification for that civic duty beyond just saying, hey, do your civic duty like uh, that we generally uh, uh, are perhaps taught in school. And I, it, it still gets a little murky there in terms of uh, just saying that you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't uh, vote uh, because of those reasons doesn't mean that you should always vote. Uh, and I think perhaps, uh, yeah, we'd have to work out the details, I guess the fine details uh, of, the, of how we should run voting through uh, a Kantian system. But I think overall, the Kantian approach would give us a sense that we do have a moral duty if we, uh, to uh, participate in our government if uh, we value that government, if we want that government to be around, independent of if, whether it's actually going to make a difference. Uh, uh, independent of those consequences, we just have, need to avoid that logical contradiction. How about Kant's formula of humanity? So Kant's formula of humanity states that you should perform an action um, just in case it um, respects the dignity of everyone involved. I don't know if you saw that first presidential debate. Um, I, I felt it was extremely undignified um, on both sides. Um, Trump was interrupting all the time. Biden was uh, throwing insults uh, and just kind of, kind of a fish out of water. Um, it, just, it just seemed like a, an undignified race. And that just seems to me to be politics in general these days. Um, it seems to me that when you vote for one of these people, you are effectively um, endorsing undignified behavior and, and thereby debasing your own dignity. Um, so I wonder whether there's not an anarchist argument for not voting from Kant's formula of humanity. Potentially. Uh, so Kant's formula of humanity, you need to avoid uh, treating anyone merely as a means, but also promoting people's ends, at least to some degree, uh, as, as individuals, respecting their inherent dignity. And I don't see how necessarily voting uh, for uh, Biden, for this example, would be treating someone uh, merely as a means. But I, I think the point that you raise uh, is interesting in the sense that it, it could lead uh, to, well, if you look at some Biden detractors, uh, some of his actions will treat people merely as a means and vice versa for, for Trump. Uh, argues uh, that certain actions that he will take will also uh, treat uh, people merely as a means as a result. I think from a content perspective, that's a little bit too far removed. Uh, in the sense that, well, your intention, what's your intention and motive? Is, if your intention and motive is to have the state of affairs where people are going to be treated merely as a means, then there's an issue. Uh, and I think there might, potentially, you could come up with a, uh, an anarchist argument built upon that in the sense that uh, the, the, uh, where your intentions, whether you realize it or not, are, in fact, treating people uh, merely as a means uh, because of the structures of the state and so on. Uh, but I don't think, uh, at least on the face of it, the way that people formulate their uh, intentions and motives, their maxim for voting, 
it generally isn't uh, because they uh, want that person to do those things. Now, maybe in some cases it might be. Uh, there are uh, individuals, uh, well, there are uh, like the white nationalist groups uh, and various racist groups uh, with, uh, in uh, uh, United States are endorsing Trump because they think they, he is this particular candidate. Now, whether he is or not, that's you know, for debate. But with those particular intentions, then yeah, that vote is immoral because you're intending those uh, treatment of individuals as mere means. Well, Jacob, I want to say this has been an absolutely delightful conversation. I think we've done a good job of avoiding the kind of talking ahead pundit um, sort of discussions that you find on Fox or CNN. I think uh, our conversation has been uh, unusual, entertaining, and, uh, and, and, and really um, the kind of thing that's I think your country needs more of, which is this sort of um, cool, respectful dialogue. You can disagree with each other, but it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, tear each other apart and act. Very uh, respectful, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least to the guest, not to you, child. <laughs> um, I also want to say that Jacob is our, our first guest who has a very prominent YouTube channel, which we thoroughly uh, recommend that you check out. It's called Philosopher Games, and we'll have a link in the description. You can also find the channel on Facebook. Um, I find it particularly delightful because there's an image of uh, Socrates and Plato holding magic cards. I mean, what more could you want out of a philosophy channel? <laughs>